To Hell With All That, One Woman's Decision to Go Back to Work by Caitlin Flanagan The New Yorker, July 5, 2004 Throughout my childhood, the 35-cent cardinal edition of Dr. Spock sat on a kitchen counter beside another font of domestic good counsel, the Settlement Cookbook. The books have fallen into my hands now, their spines mended with tape, their pages buckling with age. The two homely volumes, decommissioned and reclassified as mementos, are capable of a profound act of evocation. Of my mother, certainly but more powerfully of the qualities she embodied for me. Competence, benevolence, calm authority. To be a child with a mother who possessed those two books and the cheerful willingness to follow their practical and time-honored suggestions was to live in a world that seems to me now a bygone age, as remote and unrecoverable as Camelot, a world of good meals turned out in orderly fashion, of fevers cooled without a single frantic call to the pediatrician, of clothes mended and pressed back into useful service rather than discarded to the rag keep as soon as a button pops or a sleeve unravels. If a household is a tiny state, as of course it is, then my mother was the potentate of ours. Her command unchallenged, although our fealty was rarely vociferous. If, while wandering through the kitchen, I caught sight of her cooking dinner, I would not have taken any more note of her than I did of the humming refrigerator or the shining toaster. It was her absences I noticed, but she was not often absent. Her subjects were assured of safety, continuity, comfort of the highest order. God was in his heaven, and a rump roast was in the oven, seasoned with salt, pepper, and ginger, and basted with fat from the pan. This was before housewifery was understood to be an inherently oppressive state, before a marriage soured was a marriage abandoned. This was in the time when thrift and economy were still the cornerstones of middle-class American life. It was a rare night that the family ate dinner at a restaurant. Convenience foods consisted of Swanson frozen dinners, their aluminum trays saved for all eternity for mixing up four colors of poster paint for a bored child, for catching a drip from a leaking roof. They were called TV dinners then, but in my experience they were not eaten in front of the television. They were eaten, convivially and with gusto, in the dining room of our California home, with placemats, folded napkins, glasses to the right of knives. In my childish apprehension of things, my father was happiest when he was sitting in his armchair reading a big fat book, and my mother when she was standing at her ironing board transforming a chaotic basket of wash into a set of sleek and polished garments. Which is why it came as such a shock when my mother suddenly pulled the plug on the whole operation. It was 1973. I was twelve. The story as she always told it. One morning, she cooked breakfast for my father and me and sent us on our way, a scramble for lunchbox and briefcase, the daily struggle to get my hair brushed and braided, two sets of feet stumping down the front steps, and then quiet. The morning was hers, and she had big plans for it. She filled a basin with warm, soapy water, set it on the utility ledge of the kitchen stepladder, and climbed up. 
Her intention was to wash down the wallpaper, of which she was rather fond. It had a cheerful blue and white pattern with a Dutch motif. She had hung it herself. But as she stood on the ladder, dripping sponge in hand, something happened. In one clear moment, staring at a little windmill or a tiny Dutch girl, she realized that it was no longer possible for her to go on living that particular life. I would have been just arriving at school. My father would have been getting off the bus at the bottom of Euclid Avenue, headed for the English department and his morning class. The fogs and mists that settle on the Berkeley Hills every night would have been just lifting when my mother threw the sponge back in the basin and said, out loud, to no one but herself and, apparently with finality, to hell with it. And then she climbed off the ladder. It must have been a bleak moment. She would have sat down at the kitchen table and lit a cigarette with trembling hands. Whiskey, the wire-haired terrier, would have been hovering solicitously close by, confused by the outburst. And all the while, she would have been looking around the homey little kitchen, my favorite room of the house, location of bacon sandwiches and homemade root beer and apple betties warm from the oven, and suddenly seeing it for what it was, the center of her working life the place where she turned out meal after meal and washed the same dishes and pots over and over again and waited around with her books and her cigarettes for everyone to come home she was a person on whom history tended to operate in broad strokes and with enduring effect the impulses of her depression-era childhood never left her even later in life when there was no longer any reason to cut corners she possessed the sense of civic responsibility and personal fortitude of many people who were young during the Second World War. And on that day in the kitchen, a third historical force was at work on her. If an inchoate cultural movement can sweep down into one woman's kitchen and put words to feelings, the words of this one were, To hell with it. But to hell with what, exactly? This was the question that plagued me for many unhappy months after the stepladder resolution. Suffice it to say, to hell with the demoralizing nature of make-work cleaning projects, hadn't Betty Friedan aptly entitled a chapter of The Feminine Mystique, Housewifery Expands to Fill the Time Available, and to hell with wasting her education? Hadn't she sailed through nursing school on a sea of A's? Wasn't she still consulted about ailments and remedies by half the people she knew? She was not willing to say to hell with her marriage, which was of the volatile but imperishable variety. But as for cheerily bustling around the kitchen while the union endured one of the dreary interludes that often attend the halfway mark, well, to hell with that too. If she had lived in another time or place, certain solutions to these familiar and perhaps inevitable discontents might have presented themselves. She might have hosted faculty wife teas, or read Middlemarch, or taken up watercolor. But my mother climbed off that stepladder during a moment when there was a single panacea for what ailed her. Work. A no-nonsense nine-to-five job was what Betty Friedan recommended, and that was what my mother got. It had been nearly twenty years since she'd worked in a doctor's office, and she was nervous about going back to nursing after such a long time. But a health insurance company in San Francisco hired her as a medical claims adjuster. 
She bought some drip-dry pantsuits and half a dozen ship-and-shore blouses in pretty colors. She bought a BART commuter ticket and studied the route map. The Sunday afternoon before she started, she went into the kitchen and made five casseroles and stacked them in the freezer. She left defrosting instructions under a magnet on the refrigerator door, and when I got up on Monday morning, she was gone. Almost as soon as my mother began working, she cheered up. The sulks that had so often descended upon her lifted miraculously. <laughs> Wretched little egomaniac that I was, I hadn't taken any note of them until they vanished. The other members of the family were more or less untroubled by her transformation from housewife to working woman. My sister was away at college and had no opinion about it, and my father was the last person to squelch a money-making scheme. Not that he saw any of the cash. The pin money went toward trips to Disneyland and carpet tiles for the sun porch and new clothes and shoes all around. I was miserable. To my thinking, my mother's change of heart constituted child abandonment, plain and simple. Being home alone is a stressful experience for children. David Elkind, the author of the 1981 book The Hurried Child, has observed, and he's dead right. Just walking through the front door each afternoon to be met by the quiet gloom of the empty living room was depressing. Not that it was easily accomplished. On my first day as a latchkey child, I lost the key. <laughs> Another key was hidden under a stone for me, but I used it once and forgot to return it, and it vanished. Frustrated, my mother tied a third key on a thick white string and hung it around my neck a weighty reminder that I'd been dumped by Mom. Afternoons alone in the house were often frightening. It did not help that I am a hysteric by nature. When Patty Hearst was kidnapped across town, I became convinced that I was next. We had so much in common. Pale skin and brown hair, terry cloth bathrobes, Catholic girlhoods that her father was one of the richest men in California and mine was a college professor with a mortgage and a car loan did not factor into my threat assessment. Still, in the early 1970s in Berkeley, there were plenty of bad things happening on a more random basis. One day, there was a knock on our front door, the top half of which was a big swing-out window. I opened the window to two young men whose question to me, I can't now recall it, was so obviously trumped up, whose interest was so clearly in the living room beyond me, that I swung the window shut in mid-sentence and locked it. I stood watching from behind a curtain as they made their way up the street, knocking on doors and peering through windows. I reported the incident to my parents, who advised me not to let my imagination run wild. My terror of kidnappers and burglars eventually reached such a pitch that my mother, who by then had left the insurance company and returned to nursing, taking a job at a convalescent hospital, arrived at a novel solution to the problem, a kind of one-woman-take-our-daughters-to-work day. She bought a couple of yards of blue and white ticking, ran up a candy striper uniform on the sewing machine, and introduced me, at age 13, to a career in the healthcare industry. In lieu of a lunch hour, she would leave the hospital at 3 o'clock, 
pick me up from school, and take us both back to work to finish the shift. I would change out of my school uniform into my work clothes and spend the rest of the afternoon officiously copying chart headings, wheeling patients around the facility, a courtesy they tended to endure rather than appreciate, and making an endless series of tongue depressor houses and cotton ball bunnies in the day room, where I was encouraged in my work by the young, friendly occupational therapist. I did not last in my new post. I would grow bored long before quitting time, and it was hard for my mother to do her job and also put up with my pestering suggestions that we knock off early and swing by McDonald's for shakes. And eventually she took a better job at a hospital in Oakland, which was too far away for her to pick me up each afternoon. Once again, I was on my own fretting about unseen dangers while the defrosting casserole sat unappetizingly on the counter in a puddle of melt. No mother today who could afford to do otherwise would go to work without making any provision for her young child except to tie a key around her neck and hope for the best. My mother was by no means indifferent about me. I was her pet, the baby of the family. But children then were not under constant adult supervision even if their mothers were housewives. By the time I was five, I was allowed to wander away from the house so long as I didn't cross any big streets. I had the run of the neighborhood at six, so the idea that I would be home alone in the afternoons at the age of twelve was not a radical or an overly worrisome one for my mother. A good friend of mine was only nine when her mother took a volunteer job and left the child on her own in the afternoons. Such an arrangement was not then seen as a shocking dereliction of duty. A nine-year-old could be trusted with a key. A nine-year-old knew how to work a telephone if anything went wrong. Moreover, anxiety as a precondition of the maternal experience had not yet been invented. We kids were topped off with Salk vaccine, our fathers had saved the world, and our neighborhoods were chock-full of busybody housewives who delighted in scolding other people's errant children. Terrible things happened then, just as they do today, but they tended not to have the titanic significance of the contemporary event. Once, when I was in third grade, we were all given purple and white mimeographed letters to bring home to our mothers. The letters reported that a child molester had been preying on children walking home from the next elementary school over. "'What's a child molester?' I kept asking my mother, who stood in the kitchen reading the letter in a concerned way. That was not for me to know, but neither was it sufficient cause for my mother to forbid me to roam the neighborhood after school. I should just be careful. Careful of what? Just careful. My mother and her friends probably would not have made a bestseller of The Lovely Bones.' At age 12, I wasn't doing much that required my mother's presence. The notion that after-school hours might constitute prime time for improvement, athletic, academic, social, psychiatric, was still years away. When I think of what it was like to be a girl then, I remember an endless series of afternoons, each an ungraspable piece of time. I watched television and hurtled perilously down our steep block on my Schwinn, and dressed the cats in baby clothes. Children didn't have passions and talents. We had hobbies and collections, glass animals and plastic horses for girls, baseball cards for boys, and stamps for geeks of both genders. 
These were activities that required no parental involvement and produced just as little quantifiable enrichment. Why should my mother have to sulk around the kitchen, weepy with frustration, her only job to provide me with a beacon of reassurance and to muscle off the SLA if it came for me, while I wrestled the cats into pinafores and watched reruns of Lost in Space? The rhetoric of liberation exhorted women to go to work not in spite of their children, but, at least partly, because of them. The notion was that housewives made poor mothers. Betty Friedan reported strange new problems with those children whose mothers were always there, driving them around, helping them with their homework, an inability to endure pain or discipline or pursue any self-sustained goal of any sort, a devastating boredom with life. Being on my own recognizance was supposed to toughen me up, to deliver me from my mother's crippling cosseting and vault me to new levels of independence. Not an unreasonable theory. If I had had a different temperament, it might have worked. As it is, however, I remain an inveterate loser of keys and sunglasses and credit cards, and my anxiety about being alone in a house borders on the pathological. In a 1970 discussion of daycare, the feminists Louise Gross and Phyllis Taub Greenleaf wrote that the institution could be a means of liberating not only women, but also children. For what were the tots learning at home, except that it was a place of female enslavement? My mother's tenure as a working woman was short-lived. We spent a year overseas while my father was on sabbatical, requiring my mother to give up the best job of the lot, and by the time we returned, he had reinvented himself as a successful novelist, a surprising turn of events that energized and occupied them both. She was happy to accompany him on book tours and at publishing events, a combination of glamorous literary wife and girl Friday. But I always guiltily assumed that it was at least in part my whining and balking that was responsible for her giving up. She and I were exceedingly close. Enmeshed is the term now in vogue, and although I was the only one in the household who hated my mother's job, I was also the only one who really understood what it meant to her. Like most marriages, hers traded interludes of excitement with long stretches of tedious overfamiliarity. And as an adult, I have often thought of how much better off my mother would have been if she'd had a job, money of her own, power of her own, as she faced the hard times. Thirty years later, the notion of a woman's being blindsided by the stultification of housekeeping is positively quaint. Upper-middle-class women have been so thoroughly indoctrinated about the politics of housework that we can hardly scrape a dish without fuming about the inequitable distribution of domestic labor within a marriage. What surprises successive waves of women is how difficult it is to conduct family life along recognizably bourgeois lines and also maintain a career. It's even harder today than it was in my mother's era because the modern professional class mother is not pursuing the kind of women's work for which my mother and her friends had been trained and to which they eventually returned, nursing and elementary school teaching and secretarial work and the like. Those were posts that could be abandoned and returned to without a significant loss of stature, and were usually predictable in terms of hours and workload. 
Today's career moms are often trying to make partner or become regional sales manager or executive editor. Jobs that require a tremendous number of hours and a willingness to allow urgent appeals via BlackBerry or cell phone to interrupt even the best laid plans for family time. And all the while, not giving an inch, there are the women who have chosen to stay at home. They've forfeited the power and autonomy of work for one reason, to ensure that their children get the very best of them. And in a hundred different ways, at-home mothers are eager to remind working mothers that they're not quite measuring up. To call these tensions a preoccupation among the mothers I know would be to commit a grave act of understatement. Last year, I went to a fundraiser for the Los Angeles Nursery School that my twin sons attended. It was a dinner dance with an auction, and the signal items up for bid were chairs hand-painted by the members of each class, a project that had been laboriously created and supervised by an exceedingly earnest and energetic at-home mother. She was at the podium, a little flustered and flush with pride about the furniture, the decorating of which she was describing in effusive terms. Leaning against a far column, watching her, with drinks in their hands and sardonic half-smiles on their faces, were two of my friends, a lawyer and a movie producer. I was propelled toward them the way I was once propelled toward the cool girls in high school. And I suddenly had the bona fides to join them. My writing had recently begun to be published. We looked at the woman. Think of all she'd sacrificed to stay at home with her children. Think of the time she'd spent dipping our own children's hands in paint so that they could press their little prints on the miniature Adirondack chairs. Get a life, one of us said, and we all laughed and drank some more, and then we turned our backs on the auction and talked about work. But... I'm craven enough to change colors if the occasion calls for it. Is that poor child's mother ever at school? Someone hissed when a perfectly happy little girl marched off with her nanny one recent afternoon. <laughs> I've never seen her, I clucked back, feeling guilty about knifing the absent mother and glad as hell that I hadn't sent my own nanny to pick up the boys that day. When my children were born, six years ago, there was no question where I stood on all this. I was certain that it was better for children, much better, if their mothers stayed home with them, and that is exactly what I did. It was a mixed experience. The emotion I felt gazing down into their bassinets was akin to romantic fervor. But I'm a woman who likes ideas and good jokes, and <laughs> the poor little babies didn't seem to know any. The three of us were invited to plenty of places, to a twins-only playgroup, to a regular meeting of mothers in the park. But at the crucial moment of departure, one of the boys would nod off into a sound sleep, or they would both become transfixed by the branches scraping against the living room windows, a turn of events that only a fool would fail to recognize as a sign from God that it was time to make a nice cup of tea and have a chat on the telephone. It was my friends from work whom I wanted to talk to, not the mothers in the park. Slowly, the invitations dried up, and I became one of those lonely, out-of-sync mothers patrolling the streets with my enormous stroller at odd hours, ransacking my library of baby care books for signs of lagging development or rare medical syndromes. People began to worry about me. <laughs> my mother called and gently suggested that I go back to work.
a remark that, needless to say, infuriated me on several levels. I wasn't going anywhere. If the last gasp of my youth was to be spent sitting on a lawn chair in a tiny backyard watching the little boys poke at things with sticks, so be it. There was only one thing about motherhood of which I was certain. These early years of my son's lives would one day constitute my happiest memories. I was also certain that there would be a big payoff for the kids. The starting bell of the academic decathlon was about to ring. Nursery school, carefully chosen, highly regarded, was around the corner. There, I naively assumed, the children would fall into two easily recognizable camps, the wan and neurotic kids of working mothers and the emotionally hardy, confident kids of stay-at-home moms. What a bust. There was no difference at all that I could divine. If anything, the kids of the working mothers seemed a little more on the ball. My boys, who had been slavishly catered to by besotted late-life parents, would drop their sweaters and toys on the playground and forget they existed, while their friends whose mothers worked took care of their own things, putting sweaters in cubbies, keeping track of toys and shoes. Many of the children of the working mothers marched into the classroom without a backward glance. They were used to not having their mothers beside them. They looked ready to take over the world. In the end, what did my boys gain from those thousand days they spent with me before school took them out into the larger world? Nothing, it seems to me, of any quantifiable value. No head start in life assuring them some prize that forever eludes the children of working mothers. All they gained was an immersion in the most powerful force on the earth, mother love. And perhaps there is something of worth in that alone. Support for this opinion was readily at hand in my mother's kitchen, in the cardinal edition of Dr. Spock. He addresses the issue of the working mother in a dire final section called Special Problems. For in those unreconstructed days, having a working mother landed you in the same luckless category as the premature baby and the handicapped child. Spock, though, was an exceptionally decent man, quick to soothe the wounds his early opinions caused. Indeed, the sixth edition of Baby and Child Care, which I was given when I had my children, puts the topic of combining work and family right up front, in Chapter 1, and aims it as much as Dad as at Mom. The chapter also addresses such with-it concepts as men need liberating too and the subordination of women is brought about by countless small acts. But I'm not so quick to dismiss his earlier thoughts on the subject. As I read them now, in the crumbling pages of my mother's book, I find them politically radical, morally compelling, and honest. Some mothers have to work to make a living he begins reasonably. It doesn't make sense to let mothers go to work making dresses in factories or tapping typewriters in offices and have them pay for other people to do a poorer job of raising their children. His solution? The government should pay a comfortable allowance to all mothers of young children who would otherwise be compelled to work. Of mothers who work for more complicated reasons, at more exalted jobs, he says this, A few mothers particularly those with professional training, feel they have to work because they wouldn't be happy otherwise. I wouldn't disagree if a mother felt strongly about it, 
provided she had an ideal arrangement for her children's care. After all, an unhappy mother can't bring up very happy children. And then he identifies a third type. What about the mothers who don't absolutely have to work but would prefer to? either to supplement the family income or because they think they will be more satisfied themselves and therefore get along better at home. His answer to this question has angered many women, but it proceeds from nothing more malevolent than absolute respect for the maternal bond. The important thing for a mother to realize is that the younger the child, the more necessary it is for him to have a steady, loving person taking care of him. In most cases, the mother is the best one to give him this feeling of belonging, safely and surely. She doesn't quit on the job. She doesn't turn against him. She isn't indifferent to him. If a mother realizes clearly how vital this kind of care is to a small child, it may make it easier for her to decide that the extra money she might earn or the satisfaction she might receive from an outside job is not so important after all. What Spock could not have predicted was how many women would fall into his second category. Mothers with professional training are thick on the ground these days, and their desire to work is at once more complex and more profound than Spock imagined. A woman with an education and a desire to take part in the business of the world, someone who wants a public life even a thousandth as vital and exciting as Spock's, may not be uniquely suited to the simple routines of childcare. In fact, the life of the nursery can handily diminish what is most hard fought for in a person. It isn't simply a matter of extra money or satisfaction. For many women, the choice amounts to the terrible prospect of either relinquishing a measure of influence over their children or abandoning, to some extent, the work they love. For them, this will always be the stuff of grinding anxiety and regret. My mother died the way Mike lost his money in The Sun Also Rises, very slowly and then all at once. I had been with her two weeks before, and any fool could have seen that she was near the end, but she was my mother. I thought she was going to live forever. In the modern way, my family had a memorial service instead of a funeral. There had been heavy rain on the terrible day in the hospital, but the day of the memorial was glorious. An overflow crowd sat on wooden folding chairs in my parents' garden and ate lunch. Then everyone pressed into the living room for the speeches. People remembered the countless dinner parties my mother had thrown over the years, and also the encouragement she had given with her famous pep talks and cheery phone calls, the excursions she would plan if anybody was feeling low. Sitting on her writing desk, in a corner, unnoticed and unremarked upon, was her old nursing school portrait, which had been taken in a photographer's studio more than half a century earlier, and which she had paid for with her very first wages.